Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses, verse 49 through chapter 13, verse 9. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. We are living in a significant moment in history. Uh, if you are in your 20s, you have already been through a number of historic events. A major terrorist attack, two wars, two recessions, several natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, and a couple of global pandemics. You've also seen some significant technological advancements that have changed the world. The, the internet and the broadened, almost universal use of cell phones. These are some significant events that have had some historic importance and for those of us who are older, we can only add to that list because we have more history with which to work. Well, as we think about these significant events over in, in the times that we're living and, and over the past few decades, what would you say is the most significant, consequential, world-changing event in history? Well, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. Of course, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, his life, death, and resurrection. That's the most significant thing that's ever happened in the world. 
And so I want you to consider two things today. First, I want you to consider the significance of Christ's coming into the world. And then secondly, I want you to consider your response to Christ's coming into the world. First, consider the significance of Christ's coming into the world. In the text before us, Jesus is continuing to address the great multitude that is surrounding him, consisting of the enraged religious leaders, uh, the great crowds of people from everyday life, ordinary walks of life, and also his little group of disciples. To this multitude, he makes the provocative, striking statements of verses 49 through 50. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. His words are filled with emotion. Well, this first statement in verse 49 is somewhat ambiguous and therefore a bit difficult to understand precisely what Jesus means. And the question that uh, is difficult to discern is, what does Jesus mean by fire? Well, I believe the most natural interpretation is that Jesus is referring to judgment. Fire is used as a metaphor for judgment throughout Scripture. And Jesus has just been speaking of judgment in the immediate previous verses of chapter 12. However, some commentators build off the words of John the Baptist when he referred to Jesus in Matthew 3. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see the element of judgment there, but you also see baptism of the Holy Spirit that eventually occurred at Pentecost, where the promised Holy Spirit came to the church and appeared as flames of fire over the followers of Jesus. God's people, the church, were given the Holy Spirit to empower and sanctify them. They were empowered to continue to work for his kingdom, to be his witnesses. Now, when you take verse 49 and you couple that with verse 50, and they, they should be coupled because they're parallel. If you, when you read them, you probably see that they, they're kind of rhythmic and they, they uh, are side by side, parallel. Well, verse 50 clearly refers to the suffering and death of Jesus for sin. And Jesus uses this kind of language, this language of baptism concerning death elsewhere. Mark 10, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He was talking to James and John there who wanted to sit on either, <clears throat> either side of his throne. So as we consider these things, I think we have to broaden our interpretation to include all the ultimate purposes of Jesus' coming, specifically all that occurs in reference to the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus is expressing his eagerness for the purposes for which he came to earth to ripen fast. He has already set his face to Jerusalem. We see that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, 
He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from chapter 9, the end of chapter 9 onward, Jesus is steadily tracking towards Jerusalem, towards that purpose of laying his life down for sinners such as we are. Well, Jesus is on this mission from the Father, and he's eager for it to be completed. The ultimate destiny of all creation is tied up in his mission. The ultimate destiny of every individual human being is tied up in his mission. He has come to cast fire on the earth. One commentator says this, Fire has a twofold effect. It destroys what is combustible and purifies and refines non-combustible objects. The Savior here utters his deep longing that his work of salvation shall be completed so that his beneficial works may, through the power of the Holy Ghost, enter into the lives of mankind in full measure to the undoing and destruction of evil and to the purification and refining of the faithful. He indeed began to kindle this fire on earth right at the commencement of his activities, but only after his death of redemption, his resurrection and exaltation, and after the pouring out of the Holy Ghost was this fire fully kindled. Well, there's a saying, this, the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. In the same way, it's the same fire that burns and consumes wood also purifies gold. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is God taking on human flesh, becoming one of us so that he might make everything right that is wrong. Everything that is wrong with this world, sin, evil, decay, death, Jesus came to make it right. This is not how the world was created to be. And, and he is going to renew his people and the earth. With the fire he casts on the earth, he is going to burn up sin, evil, decay, and death. And he is going to purify his people and the earth. Well, he did this by, first of all, going to the cross to bear the penalty of sin that those who believe in him would be freed from the guilt and the power of sin. He rose from the dead to defeat decay and death. Now, this is the most significant thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, and it's not even close. What could be more significant and consequential than what Jesus accomplished by dying for sin and rising from the grave. The effect on this world is transforming. And when he returns, as he promised, he will complete the renewal of the earth and his people, and he will destroy evil. We will be freed from even the presence of sin at that point. Now, this is not a trivial matter, of course. It is not something about which one can be ambivalent or nonchalant. Ask yourselves, what effect is the fire of Jesus having on me? Which side are you on? There is no neutrality. That's why Jesus says what he does next. Look at verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And then he describes within a household, three against two and two against three, family members against one another. See, Jesus' coming creates division 
It creates sides. There's no neutrality. If you are not with him, you are against him. You cannot afford to pay no attention to Jesus. Your eternity hangs in the balance. It is of paramount importance. Now you think of all these significant events we've mentioned and how we've responded to them. They've changed our lives, of course. Think of the terrorist attacks of, of 9-11, how that changed our world, how it changed travel, how it changed the way that we view uh, all kinds of different things in our lives. And think about this current pandemic, how it has affected the world, how it has changed economies, how it has affected travel as well. And think about advances in technology like the internet and cell phones, how that has transformed daily living. You know, you can live without a cell phone. I know that's shocking to many people today. Uh, and some of you have embraced the technology. You didn't have cell phones or smartphones before now. You didn't spend a lot of time on the internet, but since we've been quarantined, you wanted to watch the services. I know some of you have, have gone out and purchased smartphones so that you could, so that you could watch the services. You've, you've got a Facebook account. You've entered into this new world of technology, of cell phone use. Well, you can live without them. You were doing so beforehand, but I doubt you're going to go back once you've embraced the technology. Now, Yes, you don't have to embrace that technology to live life. There are many people in the world who don't have the cell phones and don't have the Internet. But when it comes to Jesus, you cannot live eternally without him. On the contrary, if you do not embrace him, you face the fire of eternal judgment. Look at the, the next thing he says in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Well, like us, the people had taken the trouble to learn how to interpret the weather. It's very uh, good information to have. The weather affects your life daily. It affects the clothes you wear. It affects uh, various activities that you may or may not engage in. But here is Jesus in the midst of these people, the Son of God who holds their destinies in his hand, and they're not believing in him. They're not embracing him. They're not responding to him appropriately. And that's a question for us today. Do we see the significance of Christ coming into the world and, and what he did and what he's going to do? And have we responded appropriately to that? That's the second matter I want you to consider today. Consider your response to Christ coming into the world. Well, I've already tried to get you to do the first thing you should do, and that is interpret the present time, as Jesus said. The people saw the significance of the weather and they responded appropriately to that information. But see, they were missing the significance of Christ. You must interpret the significance of Christ, otherwise you will ignore him. You won't take the time to embrace him. 
Well, now look at verse 57. This is the second part of the appropriate response. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, you may think, what in the world is Jesus jumping around talking about magistrates and going to court and, and being put in prison about in the middle of this, of this speech? Well, Jesus isn't simply interjecting uh, some advice on lawsuits in this discourse on judgment. This is a picture of everyone before a holy God, of everyone before the judgment seat. You stand accused and you are guilty, whether you think so or not. And you had better make things right before judgment day. Judge for yourself what is the right move for you. That's what Jesus is saying. The right move is to get right with God before judgment day. Now, some people in the crowd weren't getting what Jesus was trying to communicate to them. They, they heard about judgment and what Jesus was saying. They were tracking with that. And, and then their thoughts immediately went to other people, other people who had suffered greatly. And obviously they thought, well, these people must have been terrible sinners that, that God allowed these terrible things to happen to them. The first one is that Pontius Pilate had uh, suspected some Galileans of some wrongdoing perhaps, and he had come into the temple area and murdered them, and so their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. And they thought, well, they must have been pretty bad people for this to happen to them in the temple by Pilate. Well, Jesus says, well, you think that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then there's another example. Eighteen people, a tower of Siloam, fell and killed 18 people. And the thought process would have been, well, they must have they've come under the judgment of God. They must have done something and, and very bad. They must have been terrible sinners. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now we can all think of someone we know or heard of that we think is worse than us. Maybe they're just downright evil. And perhaps we relish the thought that one day they will be judged for their evil and wickedness. But to that, Jesus says, look at yourself. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It's so important that he says it twice. Now, repentance is the appropriate response to what Jesus is saying here. And what is repentance? Well, we said uh, in the confession of faith this morning we said repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience well there's a there's a lot there but it's got the, all the elements of repentance put simply repentance is turning from sin to God it's a change of mind and heart that creates a change of life. Now we often will, or many of us, most of us probably would say, yeah, we know that we're sinners. 
But sometimes that can just be words that we say. See, the, the elements that are in the catechism question, uh, especially this phrase, out of a true sense of his sin, a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, the first thing that we need to understand is, yes, that we are a sinner, but we need to specifically understand what our sin is. How have we sinned? Thomas Watson, has a, he's a Puritan, uh, one of the easier to read Puritans. He has a book on repentance, and he says that repentance has six elements. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, and turning from sin. These are all elements that need to be present to have true repentance. And the first one, sight of sin, a sense of sin. Do we understand that what we're doing is sinful? You see, if you do something and you're not really sure whether or not it's sinful, you're not going to repent of it. So you have to know that it's a sin. You have to recognize it as sin before you have repentance. That's the first step. And then there has to be some sense uh, of, of sorrow for sin, of, of, of a grief and a hatred for sin. You have to see that it's bad and wrong and not good for you and offends God and has hurt others. You have to see the badness of it, apprehend that. And you have to agree with God, confess it. Confess that it is wrong, confess that you've done it and that you're guilty of it, and agree that it is grievous and be ashamed for it. And then there's got to be a hatred for sin. If you love sin, you, you might think, well, you know, we, we all love our sins. That's why we commit sin. But if we don't have a hatred for sin, if we don't have a change of heart about the sin, we're just going to go back to that sin because we love it. So we have to cultivate a hatred for sin to have true repentance. And then, of course, a turning from it, a turning from it. If we go and we confess to the Lord that we're, we've sinned and we've done this and and, uh, and we even say, we're sorry for it, please forgive me, and then go right back and do it again, then we didn't repent. We didn't repent. Repentance is a change, a turning from sin completely, new obedience. So Jesus is saying the appropriate response to his coming into the world, the appropriate response to him is to, to put your trust in him and to turn from sin and put your trust in him. Faith and repentance. They needed to turn away from their sinful ways. They needed to see that they were sinners, not just the, the people who were murdered in the temple, not just the people who were tragically killed in the tower accident. But they, too, needed to repent. They were guilty and subject to judgment. And Christ has come to pour out fire on the earth. He's come to bring judgment. What is that fire of the Lord doing in your life? Will it burn you up or will it refine you? Will it make you more holy? That's what Jesus has come to do. The final thing I want you to think about in relation to this, there's much more we could say about repentance, but I think you get the gist of that. Consider the patience of Christ as it's illustrated here. In verse 6, he says, 
He tells a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? It's just in the way. And the vine dresser says, Look, sir, give me a little more time, another year. Let me dig around it. Let me give it a little special attention, some fertilizer. And then if it bears fruit next year, great. But if not, then we'll cut it down. Peter, in his second epistle, expresses the same kind of thing. He writes to warn his recipients of his letter, uh, this, to warn them of the things that are coming. And one of the things that, that have been prophesied about uh, that's going to happen is that scoffers will come. And scoffers are going to be saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Where is this judgment that he's talked about? Where, where, when is all this going to happen? It, it doesn't seem to be going, going to happen. And so they have ceased to care about the Lord. But then Peter says this, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, the fire of the Lord, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it, in it will be exposed. Since all these are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That would be the appropriate response. Taking these things seriously, considering what Christ has done when he came the first time, that he's going to complete that work when he, when he returns. And he's being patient. He's not being slow in, in returning and completing the redemption of the world. He's giving us time to repent. And in the meantime, we ought to live lives of holiness, godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's that renewal that Jesus brings. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the appropriate response. Turning from sin, trusting in the Lord, walking in his ways, looking for his return, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant us all repentance from our sins and a more circumspect walking with the Lord. May the Lord help us to see the significance of Christ and take that seriously and consider every day how we should respond.
Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress these things upon us, Lord, especially the significance of your coming and, and, and the, the impending second coming of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would set our hope fully there and that we would walk in your ways as a result of this knowledge. Lord, grant us repentance. Help us to daily repent and turn from sin and help us to have a, a good hatred of sin and a deeper love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.